and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. M.R. James, the writer behind some of Edwardian Britain's most terrifying ghost stories, also happens to be a respected medievalist and a fellow of the British Academy. In this episode, psychologist Uta Frith delves into the origins of James's unsettling stories and what they reveal about our love of a good scare. I'm Uta Frith. I'm an Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Development at University College London. I'm also a Fellow of the British Academy. For my great thinker, I have chosen M.R. James. He's incredibly famous for his ghost stories, and they have had an amazing influence on me. Of course, there is something that interests me as a psychologist, and that is why the ghost stories had such a lasting influence. Why is it that we just love to be frightened? He had taken the crucifix off and laid it on the table when his attention was caught by an object lying on the red cloth just by his left elbow. Two or three ideas of what it might be flitted through his brain with their own incalculable quickness. A rat? No, too black. A large spider? I trust to goodness not. No. Good God. A hand. Like the hand in that picture. Montague Rhodes James was one of the early fellows of the British Academy. He lived and worked between 1862 and 1936. And I'm looking now at a portrait of him. It's on loan from the National Portrait Gallery, and it now hangs in one of the rooms of the British Academy. He looks most distinguished in his red academic gown, also wearing his order of merit. I'm always proud to point out this portrait when I come along to Carlton House Terrace with a visitor. Everyone seems to recall the time when they first listened to one of the M.R. James ghost stories or when they saw one of the haunting films made for TV. I suspect M.R. James was not elected a fellow of the British Academy because he wrote ghost stories, but there were plenty of other reasons. He was a paleographer, a cataloguer of important libraries, and besides, he was a respected figure of the academic establishment. He was Master of King's College, Cambridge. He was Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge, Director of the Fitzwilliam Museum for a time, and Provost of Eton for the last 18 years of his life. My suspicion is reinforced by the biographical memoir written by his friend and Cambridge, Stephen Gaisley. And this was written in the year of his death in the Proceedings of the British Academy, 1936. The memoir highlights his work investigating and describing medieval manuscripts and producing catalogues of the treasure houses of libraries found in Cambridge colleges. It's only towards the end of his piece that Gaisley makes some mention of M.R. James as a writer. He says, He could also write other than learned works. I never greatly cared for his or any other ghost stories, but experts tell me that they are among the best of their kind. 
I have to admit, I was a bit shocked at this complete lack of appreciation of Emma James's genius by one of his close friends and colleagues. We know that he made a tradition of reading a ghost story every year at Christmas Eve, either to the students at Cambridge or to the boys at Eton College, and he was famous for that. People had a wonderful evening with candlelight and him reading these stories, evoking a frisson of horror. When he arrived and turned the handle, the door entirely refused to open, and he caught the sound of a hasty movement towards it from within. He had tried the wrong door, of course. Was his own room to the right or the left? He glanced at the number. It was thirteen. His room would be on the left, and so it was. And not before he had been in bed for some minutes, had read three or four pages of his book, blown out his light and turned over to go to sleep, did it occur to him that, whereas on the blackboard of the hotel there had been no number thirteen, there was undoubtedly a room numbered thirteen in the hotel. He can write stories where the irrational and romantic is combined with the very rational and unromantic setting of scientific research. The stories are actually set in the world of scholars. He uses Latin liberally, and I think this sort of heightens the feeling of being in contact with an original source. I admit it would not have occurred to me to link the study of medieval manuscripts to ghosts. But perhaps I should have, thinking of the deeply enigmatic texts and of the images, little monsters, strange goings-on, that make the study of manuscripts so beguiling. I have the great pleasure of being here with Christopher de Hamel, who is a specialist in medieval manuscripts. He is a fellow at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge, just across the road from King's, where Emma James was provost, and also the author of the wonderful book, Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts. Christopher, is it true that during his lifetime, Emma James was more known and respected for his work on medieval manuscripts, his cataloguing, or even then most famous for his ghost stories? Most of his contemporaries, even in Cambridge, wouldn't have known about the ghost stories. He was a great historian, antiquary, paleographer. He's famous particularly now for writing the great catalogues of the large public collections, mainly in Cambridge, but also elsewhere, describing medieval manuscripts which had never been recorded before. And in his documenting of the dispersal of the English medieval libraries after the Reformation. Within King's College and Eton, of course, he was known as a rather intimidating provost, but he also he had a soft spot for entertaining students, and some of them would have known him better for his ghost stories. That would have been his warmer front. But I suspect that his intellectual legacy is in documenting and describing medieval manuscripts.
This is a side of Emma James that many people who love his ghost stories hardly know anything about. So do people still use his catalogues? Absolutely they are, and in many cases, many of the libraries that he described have never been recatalogued, though bit by bit they're beginning to do it. Many of the libraries in Cambridge now have the M.R. James catalogues up on their websites, and the descriptions that he gave haven't altered. You're describing a book that's 500 to 1,000 years old. It hasn't altered in 60 years. Um, James was in some ways rather lonely figure, sitting in these libraries in the 1890s and early 1900s, describing books which very often had hardly ever been seen before writing descriptions for the first time. Here's a man whose whose greatest work was more than 100 years ago. But he has an extraordinary eye for picking out the oddities, the inscriptions, the medieval press marks, the rare texts, the, the, the places where things have been altered or erased or moved around. And James is very, very good at noticing that. It is like opening a door to another world and makes me somewhat sad that this isn't actually the path that I choose because there was a time when I could easily have become a scholar of medieval manuscripts. I was really attracted by this whole idea. There is still time and you still could. (laughs) Many of the great manuscript specialists these days are part-time amateurs and there's a place for all of them. Do you think it is possible to explain why Emma James had this idea to write ghost stories from his being immersed in the medieval world. He is an intellectual and an academic and an old-fashioned English high church university bachelor don of the late 19th and early 20th century. And out of that, this fame for slightly frivolous ghost stories in some ways seems almost inappropriate. James is clearly rather fascinated in the slightly offbeat forms of knowledge and of history. His best study of biblical work is on the Apocalypse, which is certainly the strangest book of the Bible, and on the apocryphal texts, Bell and the Dragon, and these weird stories. He's clearly fascinated by manuscripts of secret texts. He's interested in alchemists. And then out of this, of course, comes the ghost stories, most of which are set in his own world. The hero is usually an antiquary, someone like him. It involves a lot of, of manuscripts, of ruined monasteries, of candle, you know, candle-lit evenings, of travels around Europe and Britain, which James did a great deal of. He travelled around France year after year on a bicycle, uh, visiting cathedrals, and those accounts of the visiting antiquary are as near to autobiographical as you will ever get. I do have the collected ghost stories here, and he does say in his preface... Do I believe in ghosts? To which I answer that I'm prepared to consider evidence and accept it if it satisfies me. So a very nice, dry, academic, almost scientific answer, which seems to me to fit with everything that you said, that he's very much embedded in this world, but he he loves the things at the periphery. And James was very much the traditionalist, and spiritualism was sort of not so far away from Edwardian drawing rooms. Perhaps the, the story that most combines the activity of the scholar and the experience of this sudden horror is... One of the earliest stories of Emma James, Canon Alberic's scrapbook. 
And what's interesting about this story is that it is set in a small town in the Pyrenees in the vicinity of Toulouse. And M.R. James actually visited this place. He really gives us a lot of details about the town, the church, things he sees. And then he writes this amazing story set in the spring of 1883, She says an Englishman arrived at this old world place. He was a Cambridge man who had come specially from Toulouse to see St Bertrand's Church. This Englishman called Deniston finds an absolute treasure of a manuscript in this town and he manages to buy it for a ludicrously low price. And there is something very wrong with it. In many ways, this Cambridge man is M.R. James himself. He goes to this remote place and he hears about this manuscript. They bring it out wrapped up and immediately you can see the catalogue's mind working. He's, he's looking at it, he's identifying it, he's opening it up and then he begins to recognise what's inside it. And these are little fragments from famous manuscripts that are missing leaves and they've all been gathered up in this thing. And there is the manuscript cataloguer in the guise of the hero of the ghost story. When a lamp had been brought and chairs set, the sacristan went to this chest and produced therefrom, with growing excitement and nervousness, as Deniston thought, a large book wrapped in a white cloth. The next moment the book was open and Deniston felt that he had at last lit upon something better than good. Before him lay a large folio, bound perhaps late in the 17th century, with the arms of Canon Albrecht de Molion stamped in gold on the sides. There may have been a 150 leaves of paper in the book, and on almost every one of them was fastened a leaf from an illuminated manuscript. Such a collection Deniston had hardly dreamed of in his wildest moments. Here were ten leaves from a copy of Genesis, illustrated with pictures which could not be later than A.D. 700. Further on was a complete set of pictures from a psalter of English execution of the very finest kind that the 13th century could produce. And perhaps best of all, there were 20 leaves of unsealed writing in Latin, which, as a few words seen here and there told him at once, must belong to some very early unknown patristic treatise. Could it possibly be a fragment of a copy of Papias on the words of our Lord, which was known to have existed as late as the 12th century at Nîmes? The footnote by M.R. James says, we now know that these leaves did contain a considerable fragment of that work, if not the actual copy of it. It's wonderful how he ties this in with his own work and makes it very, very realistic. I mean, in this and other stories, he's describing the life of an antiquary. Primarily, he's interested in the books themselves, how books were made, where they've been, how they've survived, why they're illustrated, where the tradition comes from. And you see that in the stories. His heroes are people like him with notebooks traveling around collecting information. It's absolutely wonderful for me to hear this because I did potentially fear that you might say, I have nothing in common with M.R. James. That was a long time ago. He was an amateur compared to me. In our world, M.R. James is probably the greatest manuscript historian who has lived in England. That has astounded me, actually. And I'm so pleased about the fact that you find not just 
that as an admiration for M.R. James, but also an affinity. I share very little of M.R. James's own background, but I know I could spend a marvellous evening with him. He and I would understand what it is he was looking at. I find that other things also drop away when we talk about this enthusiasm, and that is when I think about cognitive neuroscience, which is very far removed from having tangible objects. Well, we have the brain, which is hardly tangible to, to look at. And there, too, I think everything falls away in this enthusiasm to find something that nobody else has found and having some kind of incredible pleasure in discovery. And, of course, that's true for for the study of the mind as well as the study of manuscripts. Manuscripts, as much as anything, include a great deal of the human experience in that you're looking at a thousand-year-old book and that kind of kinship, that kind of linking of human thought process is tremendously exhilarating. The books speak to us over generations. And they are, they are real. There's a real sense of presence. The ghost stories show that the fear of the unknown, the fear of the dark, fear of possible predators are all alive and well in us even if we don't normally acknowledge them. And even when our culture and technology has developed to such an extent that these fears really look outdated. But there's always the possibility of the unexpected, of rock being pulled from underneath our feet. As noiselessly as possible, he stole to the door and opened it. The shattering of the illusion... He almost laughed aloud. Propped, or you might say sitting, on the edge of the bed was nothing in the round world but a scarecrow. A scarecrow out of the garden, of course, dumped into the deserted room. But here amusement ceased. Have scarecrows bare bony feet? Do their heads loll onto their shoulders? Have they iron collars and links of chain about their necks? Can they get up and move? It's a challenge to know why we love to be scared. So my speculation is that I enjoy experiencing a forbidden thrill while I'm still in control. In theory, I can stop reading when it's just getting a bit too much. In practice, of course... I'll never do that. I have to be to the end. And it is true that there is this shadow of fear that will accompany me when I turn off the light, try to go to sleep. But perhaps I actually like the idea of giving the mighty fear circuits of the brain a good workout. Perhaps it's a rehearsal for a frightening reality that I know exists, but I hope I will never have to face. That idea of going to some remote country inn or staying in a room in a ruined monastery and you go up the creaking stairs with a candle and the candle gets blown out, that we don't have now. It just doesn't exist and it's a little flicker, it's a little reminder, a little survival of that fear of the dark which has been with our ancestors for tens of thousands of years and it's probably over now. It's not over because we love the stories. It's a nostalgia for this. Sorry that it's over. There's a wistful world we have lost in that we no longer need to be frightened of the dark. 
Well, coming back to the portrait of Emma James that hangs in the British Academy, it's actually quite sketchy in many ways. But we now know how his stories, which stir the imagination, fit together with his immense scholarship. And this makes him a much more interesting, multi-layered, great thinker whose influence is still noticeable today. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work The British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.